do take up an overall survey of Savitri, which may easily be considered to be the final testament of Sri Aurobindo to humanity. It contains the essence of his vision, his experience, and his mission. As you all know, he started working upon this poem even when he was in Baroda. And for over 50 years, he was working upon it. Naturally, it has undergone number of revisions, drafts, and uh, Dinendra Kumar Roy, the Bengali literator mentions in his memoirs that Sri Aurobindo was writing on Savitri during the Baroda period. At that time, he had given the title A Tale and a Vision. Obviously, when he was acquainting himself with the Indian lore, particularly the epics, he must have come across in detail the story of Savitri. Now, the story of Savitri originally appears in the Mahabharata, in the Vanaparva, it runs into four cantos and has been repeated with some modifications or other in the various Puranas. And today there is not a single Indian Hindu family who is not conversant with the main story of Savitri. The story as it runs is this. Ashwapati, king of the kingdom of Madra, he had no issues and as was the custom during those times, he goes to the forest for austerities to propitiate the goddess and he is there in the forest for nearly 18 years undergoing penance, austerities, at the end of which period Goddess Savitri appears to him and grants him a boon that 
something of her would take birth as his daughter. Satisfied, the king returns to his kingdom and in due course a resplendent daughter is born. The daughter is brought up in a royal way and when the time comes for the princess to marry, to choose her suitor, it was found that nobody would come to claim her hand, though everybody would admire, nobody would come to claim. So they having waited enough, the king asked her to go abroad, go around the world and choose her own partner. So the princess, accompanied by an aged minister and a retinue, she starts out and it is more than two years since she makes up her choice and returns to her father to announce her choice that she has selected Satyavam, son of an exiled king, Dumatsena. Sage Narad, who happens to be there very conveniently, he disapproves and says, but Satyavam is going to die within a year. And she's advised to change, but she says, no, I have given my word, and once I've decided, there is no question of changing. So, the parents yield, she is married to Satyavam, and one year passes, and on the fated day, she accompanies Satyavam to the forest on the plea of wanting to get herself acquainted with the uh, region frequented by her husband. And when he is cutting wood for fuel in the forest, Yama appears, the god of death, and claims his soul. She tries to argue with him, to stop him, but for no avail, he pulls out his soul. And then he starts going back to his kingdom, but Savitri would not live. She has in the meanwhile equipped herself with religious rituals and she follows Yama, the god of death. He is certain that at some stage when they reach the river Vaitarini, which cannot be crossed by humans, she is bound to stop. But to his amazement, because of the virtue that she has gained by, virtue, by reason of the austerities, she crosses the river, follows him, and 
we have wonderstruck Yama. She is irresistible in her arguments, in her spirit, religious uh, uh, power of character, and he gives her plenty of boons, returns her husband, and all is well. Now this story is told and repeated, read out in many homes to emphasize the virtue of conjugal fidelity, happiness. To Sri Aurobindo, however, his eye perceived something more, something behind the whole story. He saw some memory, some recollection of an event that must have happened in the early cycles of the Aryan people. And why he felt like that, he explains. The names of the characters, they gave him a clue. Satyavan is one who carries Satya, one who carries the truth, the soul, the human soul which carries the truth, that is Satyavan. Then his father, I'm sorry, and Savitri, she is the daughter of the sun, Savitri, the divine word, the grace that has come down to deliver man from the grip of death. And her father, Ashwapati, his name is more symbolic, Ashwa, right from the Vedic days, has come to signify power, spiritual power, vital power. And he is the Pati, he is the Lord of spiritual power. Only one who has obtained mastery over the spiritual power can father the human embodiment of divine grace, that is Ashwapati. Then comes the father of Satyavan, his Dhumatsena. Dhumatsena, Dhumat is shining. Sena is host, army. So Lord of the shining hosts, Dhumatsena. It means the divine mind, lustrous, which is now blinded, he is a blinded king, blinded, exiled, exiled from his rightful kingdom of light and descended into this world of ignorance and blindness, falsehood. That is why he is exiled, he is blinded and he is outcast. That is the divine mind. So these names gave him a clue that it is not just a story. It is not only a legend 
but it signifies something else in the evolution of humanity a promise and so he called it a symbol he turned the whole story into a narrative a prophecy of the conquest of death by the divine grace for the benefit of humanity as part of the manifestation of truth and in doing so choosing this noble theme he converted a local legend into a symbol of cosmic significance it is not that it is a poetic vision it is a prophetic grasp of something to happen which is in the process of happening that is why so much importance is given it is not a vision of a utopian character but because there is a truth content in it and it is developing in the evolution of humanity that it has come to occupy such a prominent position in the writings of sri aurobindo as i said he worked over it for nearly half a century as you all know he was a perfectionist even his prose writings like life divine before it was given the last touch he would revise and revise change even a comma take it back put it back and till the last moment he would see the proofs as long as his eyes sight was in order he would always go through the proofs and make corrections if that he, he did that in prose you can imagine what he did in poetry he was a born poet and he was proud of it when radhakrishnan addressed him as a philosopher when he wanted a contribution from him for the silver jubilee volume of the indian philosophical congress he wrote to dilip that i have never been a philosopher i was a poet and a politician so this being a poet his conception of poetry was different from the modern or the normal conception of poetry as it goes he always had that vedic context vedic background that a poetry is not just meant to amuse it is meant not only to enlighten but to deliver deliver a charge of inspiration which the poet receives 
poetry is a charged word and in his study entitled the future poetry he traces the development of english poetry and shows how it is steadily moving in the direction of the mantric concept the world as a mantra of course he did not have to dwell upon it as far as sanskrit poetry is concerned because it is always an accepted fact and as it has turned out to be savitri has been a perfect example of the mantric poetry that he had always envisaged apart from the fact that it is the longest epic in the english language something a little less than 24000 lines though mother was pretty certain that it must have been 24000 lines somehow some lines have been missing and some portions have been revised at least 11 times some i was told 21 times i am not sure but of the 11 times i am quite sure and he did not have as much time as he wanted to write it he would take it up for a while then other preoccupations would intervene and then it would be dropped to be taken up some time again also apart from the question of time he used savitri writing savitri as an experiment in expressing the different states of consciousness which he was ascending in the course of his yoga so he said i revise each portion that i write i would pull up to the new level of consciousness attained when i took it up again for revision so each portion important portion at least has been pulled up number of times and there are so many drafts ultimately he revised the last portions of his choice only a few weeks before he left his body he worked furiously on the book of fate in which he dwells upon many fundamental issues before man before that he did the 11th book containing only one canto the everlasting day of about 1500 lines out of which at least 400 lines were dictated at one stretch perhaps a little less than 400 but we can say 400 lines 
and what is remarkable is that of the 1500 lines that he dictated not a comma had to be changed afterwards it is in such white heat of inspiration that he has cast his whole philosophy knowledge experience in the lines of savitri also as mother confirmed later her own yogic experience alongside his they have been verbally recorded in some of the portions of this poem it is an epic it is not just a poem and an epic accord by standards all standards is something that sums up in itself the high peaks of human civilization of the people concerned the contemporary thoughts and customs ways of living and the ideal held up by them. so the past the present and the future sure bindo is has given remarkable expressions has used remarkable expressions reflecting the contemporary mood and the idiom he speaks for instance of the stratosphere of the superconscious of unprovisioned checks on the beyond on the credit bank of time he speaks of the cold fifth columnist an expression fifth columnist which came into prominence and usage during the spanish civil war he speaks of television's glass many of these expressions expressing the technical bent of the human mind in the present times he sums up the past how the world began at what stage the humanity of the day came to be and what is most important which no other work has given with that accuracy that it has savitri has is the geography of the occult worlds the whole of the second book spread over 200 pages and more he describes the different worlds the layers of the levels of worlds right from the earth to the satchidananda physical earth to the satchidananda with great detail how there are different worlds in broadly in seven categories 
and how each world is interacting with others and what it means to man on earth. This no writer, no theologian has given in this detail. There have been some writers, Swedenborg, for instance, who has written about the hell and heaven and all these, but they are more or less colored by their Christian beliefs and they are not verifiable. What Sherwindo has written and described in the book of the Traveller of the Worlds, they can be verified. There are scriptures in the different parts of the world which confirm the existence of these worlds, the character of these worlds, the denizens of those words, that he has done with great detail, at times almost frightening, at times unnerving, but he has done with great beauty and great precision. The rest, he has caught up the story, added number of his own observations, and altogether introduced a new style. For instance, in one line he would narrate, he would sum up a whole experience and then it would be followed by four or five lines of explaining things. In another place he would first develop a thought, five lines, six lines, and then on the seventh he would sum up the entire thought. So there is a lot of variety in dealing, and there are a lot of echoes from the other scriptures, other religious writings, incidents that have happened in the growth of man. And there is much more which we would touch when, as we get along. Now, we said that Savitri is both a legend and a symbol. Now, in the very first canto, these two are juxtaposed. So, the beginning of the canto, first canto, the symbol dawn, is both the first dawn of the present cycle of manifestation. It is also the dawn of the day when Satyavan must die. So on one level it narrates the events preceding the manifest, this cycle of manifestation. Somewhere in the middle, he joins it to the morning when Savitri wakes up and remembers that that is the day 
when Satyavan must die. So both are combined in a very skillful way. And everybody would agree that this first canto is the most difficult to understand and much more difficult to expound. But on that account, we shall not skip it. And he begins with the line, it was the hour before the gods awake. That is, the gods, the cosmic functionaries, are not yet started their work. He does not say they were asleep because gods do not sleep. Aswapnaha Deva. The gods do not wink their eyes. They are always open. So he says, before the gods awake, means awaken to activity. And that is the time before anything starts. And then he gives a series of descriptions, a series of pictures of what was there before this creation, before this manifestation, before this light, what was there? He says, there was only the night. Night means the dark in conscience. Before consciousness can come, before any life can manifest, there is something in conscience, without life, without consciousness. There was nothing. But you can't simply say that it was empty. So there was the foreboding mind of night lay stretched across the marge of silence. Yes. The foreboding mind of night lay stretched immobile upon silence marge. That is, there was utmost silence. There was no movement, no sound. And on the border of that silence, this mind of night, in conscience, alone, there was nothing else, lay straight, it was spread out, and to hint that it is not something dead, Sir window deliberately uses, in her unlit temple of eternity. He says the word temple is to convey the sense that there is something holy, something sacred. Even in the inconscient, there is the divine presence. Temple of eternity. Time is not it. It's only the eternal. And that is the temple. The eternal is itself a temple. And that mind is a foreboding mind. There is something which indicates that something is to come. It points to something that is to happen. That mind. And it 
lay stretched immobile. And what did it feel? This foreboding wind of night stretched out, says it is something like the abysm, the profound depth of the infinite which has yet no form, no body, something like an abyss and the mind was a muse, musing, dwelling upon something, but it had no sight, it had no eye. So this is a very memorable description which he ends seeing at that time. A fathomless zero occupied the world. A zero means apparently there is nothing, but it is not an empty zero. It is a fathomless. You can't plumb and find out thus far. This is the foundation. No. A fathomless zero occupied the world. Everything comes out of that zero. So first, the foreboding mind of the gods have not got into activity. There is the night of inconscience and the foreboding, that mind of night is stretched out. It is signifying something foreboding and one feels a giant fathomless zero occupying everything. We'll go ahead with the next picture in our next session. In that darkness of night, which cannot be analyzed, which cannot be fathomed, it stirs. There is a, what is called spanda in Sanskrit. And a moment for which you can have a no name, which can have no name, an idea which is not thought over, appears and it looks as if this idea, this moment has no aim, but it wants something, but it does not know how to do that. And that stirs Tease this the inconscient to wake ignorance. This is a very famous expression of Sri Aurobindo, a criticism of which leads him to write a defense, a classic defense of his stand as a poet because the critics who hold that in bringing the inconscient and the ignorance, he is bringing in philosophy, philosophy in poetry, which is not done. Poetry is an art, 
You can't bring metaphysics, you can't bring philosophy in poetry. So that is a school of thought, of critics, which voiced its criticism of this kind of poetry. Sri Aurobindo, however, says that he does not accept the position that a poet has only to weave beautiful pictures, descriptions of nature and things like that. But he says it is quite legitimate for a poet to render his vision, to describe his experience, 